Sorry, can't say. What's that word you use? Spoilers. I like that word. Hello and welcome to Spoiler Nation, the podcast where we have spoiler-filled discussions on your favorite and sometimes not so favorite and sometimes mediocre in this episode. Doing the whole burger tonight. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Top, middle, bottom. Um, movies and TV shows. But we'll focus on movies in this episode. Um, joining me as always, of course, is, uh, let's see, the best supporting actor to my life. Thank you Reese. very much. Hey, everybody. <laughs> and we also have a special guest star today, um, Chris, Mr. Movies himself. Yes, I'm here. Hello. So, Chris, you have a YouTube channel? Sure. Let's call it that. It's a place where i post some videos on youtube i wouldn't call them it's a youtube videos. channel what are you sort talking of about? i'm not it's fine chris has a youtube channel uh where he also talks about movies by uh, myself in my room right uh today we're having a special best popular film episode so let's do a quick recap of what happened with really the oscars celebration is it really a celebration of something that was awful to begin with and never should have been a thing it's a good idea for a podcast not so much for the oscars yeah kind of stupid let's start with the beginning okay. so i i suppose a few months ago the oscars or the academy the body of people who are behind the, the academy oscars, of motion picture arts and sciences that's right thank um, you for that uh so they announced that um they were going to introduce a new category, which is best popular film, to um, wildly positive re- reception, right? Yeah, it's so <laughs> positive that no one could come up with like a single good defense of why that this should be like a category, and um, everyone was just like best popular, like popular in what sense? Like there was one person who said. Blade Runner 2049 was technically like a popular movie, but it made no money at the box office. So would that be in the category or not if no one saw it? Caused a lot of headaches. The, the problem was that they had no testing of, oh, what is, yeah, as you're saying, what is popular? Does a popular movie mean, oh, it made a certain amount of money? Does it mean that it was critically loved? It There was no, there was no indication of what kind of, like the, the, all the other awards, all the other nominations, they have a particular, okay, it has to be this sort of thing. Like a best picture has to be in theaters for a certain amount of weeks yeah. to, to qualify. Or, you know, like a best sound mixing has to have uh, a certain amount of people credited. You can't have, like for, actually for, for best original score, and this is another example of why I love movies way too much, is The the Revenant, the, the best original score, they didn't get nomination, even though the score was great, because they had like four different people that were actually credited on the sound track and that broke the rules for original score it has to be i think maximum two people credited so they discounted that but there was no indication of oh what is the best popular movie so they just said it's best popular film and left everyone else on the internet to go what and pretty much decide for themselves which they did and they hated it so yeah and it also discounts the fact that there are many movies that have been nominated in the past in best picture that are Wildly popular they are films. They all popular films. <laughs> all, like, 99% of them. The, the, the people that say, oh, you know, oh, who watched the, the, the Shape of Water? It still made a lot of money. Me and this guy sitting right next to me, we both paid That's our money Reese. to go see... <laughs> just yes. in case you're unclear about that, yeah. I'm next to Mr. Movies. I'm just giving you an indication of the ge- geography of why we're recording. We both saw The Shape of Water. We both paid our tickets to go see that, and we loved it. Okay, so it's a popular movie. There was a couple of people in there. When you have an, a movie at the Oscars that gets nominated for 
best picture, even if it's the most obscure thing in the entire world. Like, no one had heard of There Will Be Blood before the Oscars. Well, when the awards buzz started rolling up and they announced the nominations, then that movie became a cultural hit. People know, you know, I want to drink your milkshake. People know Daniel Day-Lewis's performance. It may not be a technically popular movie like, you know, I, I don't know, Wonder Woman from last year or Black Panther this year, but it still had an impact and there's no, the whole idea of even just calling it best popular film is stupid. Well, Laura Dern, uh, recognizing that this was <laughs> not a good idea, actually vote was the deciding vote. Her and Steven Spielberg, I believe, so, for this not to be a category. So wait, let me get this clear. Yeah. Laura Dern of Jurassic Park, yeah. uh, Big Little Lies, Twin yeah. Peaks, yeah. Um, enlightened yeah. fame. And Star Wars The Last Jedi. And yeah. of course, um, the non-divisive indie movie, <laughs> Star Wars The Last Jedi. Where she, where she the was... most popular character in Star Wars oh, yeah, The Last Jedi. No. She was the, the, the most uni- The universally beloved. We all agreed she was the coolest. Now, that, now it's axed, at least for the time mm. being. But it makes a great sort of discussion point, we figured, for a podcast. Yeah. It got me thinking... What are the best popular films of 2018 so far? But before we get there, we want to start with the most okay films of 2018. Yeah. The most. Yeah. We'll start with chewing the fat before we get to the meat. Let's do a round robin of our best mediocre slash middling movies of the year. Yes. All right, here is my list of most very fine movies of 2018. <laughs> very fine in the pejorative sense of the word. Okay, so I actually liked this movie very much immediately after I saw it, but then a week later I realized I haven't thought about it once and I don't think I'm even going to like watch it again in the near future. And that's Ant-Man and the Wasp. Don't check out my review on Isolated Nation because I gave that like a hugely positive... Didn't you give it like five? I it like a, no, I gave four. it like four. Like, four out of five. Four, I was shocked. I was, I was shocked no, by that. No, because I just really liked it after I saw it, but like vanilla pudding in the mouth dissolved. Um, after that would be Solo, which is nearly bad, but it's just enough to kind of keep you semi-engaged throughout the whole thing. And I appreciated them trying to salvage something like they tried. So, you know, for effort. And this will be the one that'll ensure there will be no more like character prequel movies, probably. Good Lord, no. So I, I'm, I am kind of grateful. At least it's just one movie doing that. So, you know, that propels it firmly to the middle for me. And then Deadpool 2, which I liked. I liked it, and that was that was really it. It didn't really, like, surprise me that much. Yeah. It, and it was just... Particularly the first one, it's such a filthy, anarchic movie. It, it's still, like, you know, it's got a standard plot and everything, but this was just sort of more of the same yeah. sequel. It's a well-done, inconsequential movie. It looks, like, fun. What yeah. Is, what is not filthy about there being a full-on CGI baby penis? Because they did a CGI little baby hand in the first one, and it's just not as surprising but if they do it. Is, a penis is worse yeah, than Yeah, it's not that shocking is what I mean. And then there's, <laughs> there's, there's Hearts Beat Loud. I don't know if you guys have heard of this one. This is... Nick Offerman uh, from Parks and Rec. Is this a movie uh, where he and maybe his daughter start yeah, a band? Start a band. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's like an indie movie, right? Well, the thing about the movie is that you're never engaged because everyone exists in indie movie world. Yeah. Like when you're watching it. I see. I was looking forward to that. It looks it looked like a nice little indie Same movie. Same I've, I've actually heard a lot about that after Sundance and I was like, oh, okay, that sounds really, really cool, but um, I'm interested. I kind of liked it in as much as that it was like very sort of sweet, but... It never rose right. above a certain pulse. Yeah, is it in the in that in the worst way? In a no, sense that it's it not has... like the. It doesn't make you cringe, and it's, it's not, not too it's not try twee. hard. It's not twee, 
but I kind of wish it was because then I would feel something more to it. Right. I, I think. I mean, I, again, I haven't. I haven't seen it, but um, I feel exactly the same way about a lot of indie movies that that people can praise. But I'm just like, it's a very indie movie, and that kind of annoys. I felt the same thing. Another Nick Offerman movie that came out a couple of years ago, Me and Earl and the Dying Girl. No, that was great. What? Are you, Are you serious? Right, right. That was one of the best I'm, indie I'm movies. I'm so glad that I get to have a platform to talk about the fact that I thought that movie was fine. But I remember when I watched, there was a, uh, there was the first screen that I ever went to. So it actually does have a little place of, you know, goodness in my heart. But that movie was the kind of everything is in indie world where they're watching Akira Kurosawa movies and they're trying to recreate yeah, them yeah. and all oh, the cameras is going on an angle but and look how cool we are. The plot. Like the, the main guy was like a film nerd. A- exactly. But also he oh. was an, he was an, he was an asshole and I hated him. He was like a regular teenager. <laughs> he was the worst uh, John Berenthal's performance in it? Come on. I, it's, com- I completely forgot he was in that movie. Well, he's not in it that much, but no, exactly. he's different. He's a different guy than usual in that but movie. Yeah, the same thing, like Nick, Nick Offerman's in that as well. And I completely forgot. I, I, Who is he in that? Is he, he's the, he's, he's the, a dad. He's the stepdad. Oh, he's a yeah, stepdad. But that, that, he can't ever not be a dad. But I'm glad that I was able to just say, I think that's it's. I find a guess, but I've never watched it again. Well, and I, how dare you? How dare you? Hard disagree. Yeah. Hard disagree. I think, I, I think what's, what sets it apart is that it has a very strong artistic intention throughout the whole movie. Yeah. And it's uh, every choice that the director makes, it's very tied to how they want to tell the story and how it reflects the characters. The and the sound design is um, like the sound, the soundtrack is amazing. Brian Eno, bitch. They even have this amazing scene where it's abstract art and it made me feel something like it made it was like one of the most emotional moments of the movie and i'm 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 a cold unfeeling person i heard nothing but the problem with it is that movie came out three years ago we're talking about the movies of today well Well, all right fine slight sidebar okay who's next for the middle because those those are my middles i've been lucky enough to not have seen that many middling movies because i feel like they are probably the worst ones where you kind of walked out like that was fine but like i kind of wasted my time because it didn't make me feel strongly one way or the other yeah so one that stands clearly in my strongly in my mind is pacific rim Uh, the the second one i'm glad someone picked it (laughs) i forgot what the subtitle is if there is one uprising there you go we did a pacific rim episode we did (laughs) yeah we did we did do an episode on it and i think again that's another one where i was like hey i liked it yeah and then it dissolves again yeah Yeah. that's that's definition of a middle exactly exactly closer to the worst in my my opinion hey we're on howie now (laughs) hey wrong wrong category Yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah Also, uh, so this movie I liked somewhat, but I kind of wanted it to be more. Uh, what is it? It's a Netflix to all the boys I've loved before. I guess it's like a rom com, a teenage romantic comedy um, that's that was just released. I, I think it actually came out the same time that the juggernaut that is crazy rich Asians came out. But this one was just okay, huh? This one was. It was nice. It was sweet. You know, it was sweet. But uh, I feel like it's have to bake like i think it could have had the script needed one more revision Mm. uh, for it to like it had like a lot of potential the actors were great the performances were great the um the cinematography was good 
Um, yeah, uh, Mike Fermognery, who you, if you know, you like me, he's the um, he works on all of uh, Mike Flanagan's movies, like Gerald's Game and Hush and Oculus. I see, really, really good. I see. I loved, yeah. I loved his work. He made it look more cinematic than that genre usually yeah. calls for. He actually, I think, he elevated the movie yeah. um, beyond what it actually is because you can see it. You could see that in a different director, it would have been like that Paul Feig clinical yeah the, look. The, the kind of you know two cameras set up yeah and we're gonna put no filter on it looks like you just Shot filmed like it's it. a skit show or something exactly yeah. uh, and i'm with you actually like i mean you you can still go with your middles but that is an overlap of mine that's in the middle for me because i'd heard about it, it got a really good score on rotten tomatoes like 93 yeah. percent. so i was like okay cool another a netflix movie that's actually good yeah who would know <laughs> but um it, it was it was fine i found that there was way too many adr issues like there's this whole scene in the bathroom which is meant to be like they're shouting at each other mm-hmm. but it just it, it it sounds exactly like they're just talking to each yeah, other like i, doing I right know now. exactly what scene you mean and yeah. i ha- i have my suspicion which is that the counterpart to the main character that actress may not be that good at acting i didn't like so that the, when they had to shoot the confrontation emotional confrontation scene they shot it from like middle yeah. length yeah. because in that that way you don't actually see them emoting yeah there's this what a weird choice <laughs> I, this is the first. <laughs> I don't really know much about this movie, but that is so fucking weird. There are a lot of weird. weird I, I felt like that was like a oh shit, working this is around, not good. Walking yeah. around a bad scene. I, okay. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. uh, there are some really great parts. Like yeah. the, the the hot tub scene is the one that uh, everyone's talking yeah iconic about on, on, iconic. That is for, all right. First off, side note: don't have don't do anything in a hot tub. It's really gross and and there's bad water. And just, no, you will have an STD by not even having sex in a hot tub. Just that's a side note. <laughs> you but, know what, guys? Do whatever you want. Don't listen to this guy. No, just don't. No, but <laughs> just don't drink it. You'll they, be fine. Lana Condor and Noah Centineo, the two actors, they have great chemistry. I love their relationship, but I never felt anything for her relationship with her own family. I didn't feel anything with uh, like relationships with her friends. I didn't feel anything for the other guy who actually turned out to be one of those guys that says all lives matter instead of black lives matter. Look it up. It's really weird. Uh, that's my other note. That uh, Israel Broussard, who's the who's one of the characters, it turns out to he has some really, really bad, bad, bad opinions on Re- Twitter. Wait, is he the uh, uh, neighbor? Yeah, friend? The, yeah, the, the one that dates her older sister. It turns out that he's been tweeting all this stuff saying like, you know, don't say black lives uh, matter, all lives wait, matter. It's like, oh, is, Wait, is this in the movie, movie or in real life? No, no, in real is, life. This is in real life. Wow, it, okay. it came out like, like a day after the movie had come out and everyone's like, oh, this guy's kind of an a-hole. People need to stop saying things on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sick of it. Okay, but Howie, what, what uh, I think there are great ideas, potent, strong performances, um, you know, great story. I think good premise, and it's done. You know, it's well, it's relatively well done. It's just a little underbaked, and I wish it could have been more poignant than it actually was. That movie made me actually uh, dislike X Men Apocalypse a little bit more because Lana Condor played Jubilee in that. That's movie. right. Watching She's in, in there for in, a second. Watching her into all the boys I loved before, I thought. She needs to be the main star of an of a Netflix of, of a of a Marvel movie. Like if she wasn't Jubilee, I would say just put her. I, I don't care. She has to be the main star because I thought that she was fantastic. That if I went back and watched that movie, I think she says like two lines, and it's a character that people love. But she is such a good actress in that movie that I, I can't stand the fact that she was in 
another movie which you did absolutely nothing. <laughs> Those are the two um, mid- mediocre movies that stand out to me. There is one. There's one more that is teetering. Like it's good, but I feel like I'm clouded by um, the social impact of it all. Um, which uh, is um, the aforementioned Crazy Rich Asians. I, it's good. I I felt things, you know, in the movie. It's a fun romantic comedy, um, and it's a Hollywood rom com with a hundred percent Asian characters. Um, so it's it's very exciting to see that and see a very very specific Chinese Asian story told. To a mass audience, it's a you know huge feat for the movie to have that specific story resonate with a wider audience. But at the end of the day, it was fine. I don't think I'll revisit the themes of this movie. Or so we're gonna have a fucking fist fight over that one, motherfucker. You see it twice. Look, I mean, if we get an honorable mention for this category, that would be it. I mean, it's I'm not throwing it in with the other. Ones so that I've mentioned, than the other ones, yeah, it's yeah. better than what I've mentioned. Mind, it's yeah. just that no, I, I'm the same way. It's better than a lot of my middle movies. Yeah, but I, 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 it's it's a simple movie. It's a very simple movie. It's a rom, it's a rom com. It doesn't so what? <laughs> it doesn't end with her like going on a plane and never seeing the guy again. It that's would not, that make it better? I don't know. Make it different. That's what it would do. Oh. I thought it was fine. I think that Crazy Rich Asians is good, but not as absolutely amazing as some people right, right, might let's, make let, it let's say. save anyway. it because I'm going to be talking about it later let's do it okay so um, yeah Chris do you have anything to um, I mean Reese already touched on it before um, he said solo and I say that as the person and the only person in this room who's wearing a Star Wars shirt yeah, I am, you are I am wearing... the biggest Star Wars fan so watching that movie I so wanted to like it and there's things that I love there's things I absolutely love about it I was listening just this morning, when I was doing um, some work on, on a review, just in the background, I love listening to the score. John Powell's score, I think, is... It's very different, yeah. It's very different. I think it's better than than Michael Giacchino's Rogue One work. It's, it is one of the, my favorite now uh, Star Wars scores because it's not just John Williams. It's not some... It, it's something else. It gives the movie a better flavor than just being, you know standard which it is it's a very kind of standard movie yeah. you know exactly where it's going except for one point which kind of annoyed the shit out of me as a star wars fan that you know this is spoiling nation so the darth maul twist it annoyed the shit out of me i hated that because i'm a clone wars fan i kept thinking that doesn't make sense there's a lot of big problems that i have with it the so the the name thing is absolutely in- infuriating that they actually did that because i thought that that was an internet rumor but it turned out to be true that's not what you should do, Disney. But there's still, uh, it's fine. The more I think about it, the more fine it gets. But the worst that it does get for me is when I think about what it could have been. And sure, we didn't need to have this movie. Particularly, we didn't need to have a Han Solo movie. But if we're going to have one, then you have to do something that's a little bit more interesting than what we got. And I said this to Therese uh, a couple of months ago, I think a week after it had come out, I kept thinking about how they should have added in a character that could have been played by Paul Bettany, a Paul Bettany-esque kind of actor, where it's a Imperial commander who is Han Solo's superior officer when he's in the Imperial Academy. So when they're on the, the mud planet and then he deserts, then he's then his superior officer gets word of that. Then he gets into his own ship and he's always on the trail of Han Solo. Because that's because this movie is meant to be a heist movie. 
But the problem is that every great, every great heist movie has that one guy that's always on the heels of the good guys, whether it be a police officer who, you know, or a detective who's, you know, trying to track down that thief. Or in Ocean's Eleven, it's Andy Garcia. He's the bad guy because he's the mark. He's the person they're trying to steal from. And that also makes the Kessel Run a lot more engaging because you can cut back to that Imperial Commander in the bridge of that Star Destroyer that's going through that massive wind tunnel. He's in that Star Destroyer, so you have a little bit more personal connection that it's an actual personal struggle for Han instead of just, we need to get out of here because the Empire's here randomly for no reason. Oh, they were tracking you the whole time. But there's no, there's no setup for that. There's a lot of things that could have been done right about that movie that they didn't do, and instead they took the wrong directions for it. I have a problem with that. I don't think that I'm going to enjoy it anymore when I watch it again. I think I'm going to like it less. But that's just solo. Other uh, middle movies, Ocean's 8 was fine. I forgot it completely when I after I watched that. I thought it was fine. Yeah, Ta- I didn't really dig that one. That no. one, uh, Ocean's 8 was i would almost put that in the middle but for me that's between the middle and the worst movie <laughs> like it's not quite like terrible enough where it's in the worst but it's not even memorable enough to be in the middle i mean yeah speaking about heist movies that's the mcdonald's of heist movies it's oh yeah fine sure. yeah it, it's it, it's better than oceans 12 that's all i can say it's better than oceans 12 because ugh. Um, but, uh, another, um, middle movie, I didn't really like Sicario Day of the Soldado too much. It was fine, but I think the problem was that I had watched the first Sicario beforehand. And that's such a good movie and it gets better every single time I watched it. I've seen it four times now and the last time I watched it, I was thinking, this is a great movie. This is awesome. I don't know why they're doing a sequel to it, but okay, fine. So the sequel is okay. But the biggest problem I have is that it's called Sicario, Day of the Soldado. The original title was Soldado. If you call it Soldado, then you can have... Oh, really? You know, you can, you can, <laughs> true facts. That's actually a factoid. Can I ask you a question yes. not to interrupt? Yes, but, you can. Okay. But did it feel like one of those like direct-to-video sequels? Like when the first movie is super popular and they're like, let's just make a cheap sequel to put I it got on that. Video. I haven't seen it, but I got that vibe from the trailer. Not, not really. It... The, the, the cheap sequel to that is, the, the, the director video sequel to Sicario is Mile 22, and I'll get on to that one later. Um, oh, yeah. But uh, Sicario, Day of, the, Day of the Soldado felt to me like, you know, you have the, the James Bond novels or the, the Millennium Trilogy by Stieg Larsson, those kinds of series of books all, all born by Robert Ludlum. Those series of books that, you know, they're tied to that author, and then the author, unfortunately, dies. Or like J.R.R. Tolkien, when he dies... You know, his his son, Christopher, takes on and starts writing stuff. But the problem is that the the following books written by the, the new authors who wants to make their own story, they're just never as good. They have good intentions and maybe, sure, some people out there really like the Silmarillion. That's weird because this is the same writer, isn't it? Yes. It, yeah, which yes, is weird. Same, it's the same writer, Taylor Sheridan, but um, that's what Soldado feels like. It feels like another, pe- another person has taken on this mantle, trying to do the same thing, and it just doesn't feel enough it's in my middle category um but also like a, a few more positive middle ones i didn't mind hotel transylvania 3 it's it's not great by like you know objective standards because it's got a lot of dumb fart and poo jokes and adam sandler is in it and you know it's it's his brand of comedy kind of but i i still just really like jindy jindy tartakovsky's animation style with the whole how the characters are moving just in these incredibly 
just frantic ways that you don't see in other animated movies. They are very unique. I can't say that Hotel Transylvania movies look or feel the same as the Ice Age movies. I feel like the third one was fine. I would, If I had kids and I took them to see it, I wouldn't hate watching it. I hated watching The Boss Baby last year, but that made money. So I hated even more because it made way too much money. But Hotel Transylvania, it was the kind of movie that I'd feel perfectly fine watching because it's kind of funny. It's kind of silly. You know exactly where it's going, but I just didn't mind it. People really like those goddamn Hotel Transylvania movies. I'm, I'm shocked. I know. Actually. I don't get it. I've never not, seen I'm them. Not, but I'm, I'm not hugely positive on them, but I'm just saying like they're not terrible. <laughs> <laughs> That's terrible. That should be on their poster. Hotel Transylvania 3. We're not minions. I think it hasn't annoyed. Oh, yeah. I think oh, it, yeah. it doesn't annoy me that much because it, it hasn't been fucking memed to death. Yeah. So yeah, maybe. That's, I think that's why I'm like, oh, I, I don't it's get it, but it's not, it's not terrible, but I don't get it. So. Is okay. that it for your middle? Um, I think so. Yeah, the, I mean, the the rest of them are just like, eh, it, it's fine. I don't, I don't really. Uh, if I don't talk about them, that's right. actually one that I was a little disappointed in. Uh, Tully. I oh. Was, oh. 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 oh, this is gonna be another oh. fist fight. Oh. <laughs> I'm sorry. Man. I I thought Tully was was okay. There was a lot about it that hey, I hey, don't apologize for your opinion. But the the twist at the end, I thought really kind of damaged a lot of what I really loved about it. I, I understand why it was in there. Diablo Cody has a great idea for that, but I find that the execution, because I love Jason Reitman. I think that he's a fantastic director. Up in the Air is one of my favorite movies. Like if, if you do top 100, it's in there. I love that film. I've seen Same. it so many times. Same, yeah. me too. Thank you for smoking is great. Juno's great. But then when you get into Labor Day and Men, Women and Children, yeah. Tully is in that category of I Jason disagree. Reitman just kind I of disagree. like Tully. If people love it, fine. I get that. I was loving about like two thirds of it. I was really, really on board with it. I love Charlize Theron. I love the opening montage. It really made me feel uncomfortable. It made me actually not want to have children. Which that's the kind of reaction that they get from me. But I just don't think that the choices in the end really work for me. And that's that's just how I feel. <laughs> we'll talk about this movie in more right. detail when we get to the best of 2018. The, yeah, we're up to the best now? Yes. Yeah. This is a good segue to our favorite films of 2018 so far. We'll go round robin style. I'll, we'll start with, you know, our fives and then four, three, two, one. Cool. Who wants to go first? We'll... I'll go first because I started off the middle. Okay. So I'll start off the best. Uh, um, out of all the fives, if I had to put them in order, my fifth one would be uh, Christopher Robin, which is a uh, this is a really <laughs> weird choice. Um, yeah, I, this isn't like a particularly deep movie or even that surprising, but for what it's doing, I think it does it exceptionally well. And I was a big fan of the designs of the hundred acre wood animals, uh, making them like sentient stuffed animals. I think I mentioned this in a previous episode. I thought that was like a genius choice. And um, I was weirdly emotionally affected by this by more than any other movie this year. So it's kind of cheating, but I think it's just for pure impact. I would go Christopher Robin as number five. It shouldn't really be there, like <laughs> if I'm being honest. But just from my point of view, uh, of all the movies I've seen this year, this really got to me unexpectedly. So I got to put it up there. That's fine, but I completely disagree. <laughs> well, well, what uh, do you mean? Uh, well, you what think do you, mean you, yeah, you, you, you think that it shouldn't okay, so, be in Reese's top five so no, favorite no, no, movies? Are you saying I didn't feel those feelings? <laughs> <laughs> no, I no, felt no, those feelings, no, Chris. No, no, no. That's I, too loud. That's too I, loud. I, I disagree with it 
Like I disagree with how with your love for that. I that's not how I feel because we were in the same screening. We were sitting, you know, right next to each other, and at the end, I remember this Reese said to me as know, he wiped the tears yeah, yeah, from he, his I, eyes. I could, I could feel that he was getting emotional, and that's yeah, that's perfectly fine. And, and he asked me, you know, oh, did, did that ending get to you? And I just said, no, I I, I didn't feel this anything. lump of coal just sat there. It was. <laughs> Fucking embarrassing. (laughs) I have cried at a couple of movies this year, which I unfortunately didn't put in my top five. I might talk about them in the honorable mentions, but I I feel a lot during movies. I didn't feel anything in Christopher Robin. I thought it was fine. And there's nothing really that I I, I said, oh, you know, this one thing that they did was absolutely awful. I thought it was fine. If families go to see this, I can... I can tell they're going to have a great time. I can see a lot of people that I know that love Winnie the Pooh absolutely loving this movie and I mean, you yeah. too and well, that's fine i could um because i want to clarify i i don't think it's like a particularly great movie <laughs> which is a weird thing to say even though it's in my it's top okay. five i think the ending with the like the third act with like chasing to get to a particular point and the cute little hijinks in the city that really lost me because that was really felt out of place for the what the rest of the movie was, which makes me think there was like a bunch of ideas for this movie and they kind of did all those ideas. Mm. That's that's where it really that's why I'd put it in number five. It would actually go higher if it didn't resort to that kind of theatrics. But also, um, what my problem, my actually my biggest problem with it, it wasn't. I mean, the cinematography I felt could have had a little bit more color because, like, what like what does that serve? Like, it's it's actually like a dim like gray movie for like a specific reason i i understand that but like watching i watched the animated stuff after it yeah but that's different from what this is but you look at tigger and he's got orange and black stripes and you look at tigger and the in christian yeah, robin threadbare animals they that the point is they haven't like been loved he for looks all this more time. yellow than than, than boo uh, no he how, doesn't that's, 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 I, not, that's, true. that's, that's how not true that's how i saw it no. I, it's very it's that's a weird, weird critique <laughs> It's a it's a weird looking movie. It it's different. It looks completely like appropriate for the story it's telling. I loved the gladiator shot. The gladiator shot. When, oh when yes, I know. Yes, that's the Terrence Malick looking. Petting, yeah, the gladiator that, shot. that is beautiful. It's that's a good shot. Very gifted. It's a very very good shot. You put it in anything, and it's going to make that it actually. Look when you watch that, you're like, what if Terrence Malick made a Winnie the Pooh movie? It looked, <laughs> looked exactly. It looked exactly like that. No, no, no. If Terrence Malick made a Winnie the Pooh movie, it'd be three hours of Pooh talking directly into Cameron saying, "That's true. It'd be terrible. No one wants to." I'd say see it, even though I didn't. I wasn't fully on board. My biggest problem was that it kind of wasted Hayley Atwell. She's, yeah, no, I agree with that. She's a great actress, and she deserves more than just playing. The wife. They could have got like 50 people to play that part. Mm. And, you know, it, w- it was a waste of their talents. But what's your number five? My number five is... I thought Upgrade was fantastic. I uh, thought... Yeah, I agree with that. Sorry. I, I Upgrade was the kind of movie that I... I'm the kind of person that watches no trailers unless it's for Marvel or for Star Wars. And for Star Wars, that's the only kind of movie that I will watch all three trailers for just because I need it. I need to have it. Okay. I need to have that, that fix man. <laughs> um, but with, with like Marvel, I watched like the first trailer with other movies. Maybe I'll watch like the teaser. If it's something that's really, really super duper exciting, but for something like upgrade, I watched nothing. I saw the poster and it said, not man, not machine more. That's it. And I, 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 uh, the, the only idea I had was he gets something to do with technology. I didn't know that Lee Winnell was involved. I, forgot that Logan Marshall Green was the star. I forgot. I knew nothing about it. I went in and I had an absolutely fantastic time, not only because it's the kind of, you know, Paul Verhoeven style, you know, 
ultra violence yeah. and, and and cool science fiction ideas thrown into this weird tone where it's, sometimes it's funny and then it'll just be super duper dark and make you really kind of feel something. And that's and that's the thing. Uh, Lee Winnell, who I, I haven't, I, I watched a little bit of Insidious Chapter Three. I didn't think it was particularly all that interesting. So Australian director, right? yeah, 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 Australian director Adam um, from Saw. Right, yeah. Adam from Saw, the, the yeah. guy in the first Saw, him he's and, like the whiner wiener guy. Him and James Wan, uh, you know, best friends. So they they wrote that movie t- together, and yeah, they, so they so they've they've collaborated on so many different things. So for him to go out into this kind of own path, um, and the, what what he was able to do with particularly because I'm a big old cinematography nerd. I know way too much about who shot what and what they shot it on. Like I know that Blade Runner 2049 was shot on the Arri Alexa Mini and the Arri Alexa 65 using Panavision E prime lenses and C prime lenses. What's this got to do with upgrade? The pro- <laughs> <laughs> what, what Winnell was able to do with how he locks the camera onto Grey when he's doing the action fight scenes and it's always with him. It's very kind of Fincher, like if Fincher directed a full-on action sequence, that's what he would do because he would lock the camera camera onto the characters so you are always with them you are fully on board with his story with what he's going through with his feelings it's perfect subjective filmmaking upgrade was the kind of movie that i want to just keep talking about that virtually no promotion from what i understand i mean you, you google image and it's like one poster it's yeah. a blumhouse film right yeah they spend like 10 cents and like go make yeah. your, go make your movie <laughs> yeah it's 10 right. cents a piece of string yeah 10 cents and a piece of string and he made something very impressive with that so i think i think he did pretty well for what its limitations yeah, of five money million dollar budget about 12 million yeah so which was mainly it, it, domestically actually yeah it made a made a profit so good yeah. for that what's what's your next one wait no my yeah. turn so, what's up, Hello. Howie? i Hello. can't wait to just jump on whatever your choice is <laughs> just just yell at you my number five is a Spikely joint Black Klansman. Oh, I like that movie. We talked about this in literally our previous episode before this, I think. Yeah. Yes. It's, I think, a return to form for Spike Lee. And Spike Lee at his best when he mixes his black exploitation style influences and that kind of in your face filmmaking and his potent social commentary. And that kind of witty dialogue and humor between his characters, it's just a perfect marriage of what makes his movies work so well and gives it that distinct style. And of course, um, anchored by um, great performances by Denzel Washington Jr. What's his name? John Washington. John Washington. Washington. That fro. (laughs) And also, you know, it's a good two-hander with Adam Driver as well. And, you know, of course, this movie is um, based on a true story of a black policeman going undercover and infiltrating the KKK with the help of his white partner. So essentially, he plays the, the same person on the phone, Ron Stallworth, to the KKK, and then when they want to meet him, um, Adam Driver plays that same character, essentially. Yeah, so they're, they're kind of both doing it. That, that, that's a really good pick. I love that movie as well, because I had no expectations of that movie whatsoever. I barely... I've seen, like, three Spike Lee movies. The, 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 the three good ones, well... Two good ones. I think I've seen parts of the old boy remake. Right. Um, but like like Malcolm X and Do the Right Thing, great movies. Yes. So I didn't really have too much expectations of what he is as a filmmaker, and I'd heard maybe some mixed things. I think that that I would be I would be happy if it gets nominated for like best picture. That'd yeah. be cool. But I think it would probably get a like a best adapted screenplay sort of thing because mm-hmm. best of a book. I think that. Topher Grace will be 
best supporting actor. You, Be- you think? Because he's I great lo- in it. I love yeah, John I can... Washington Jr. Adam Driver is great. Laura Harry is great. But Topher Grace went to places that you don't want to go to. You don't want to play the Grand Wizard of the KKK. He <laughs> talked about how he went to such a dark place that he had to do something menial and trivial. That's just actor wank. Yeah, no. I, I was going to say... He's great and he's very delightful in the role, but I'm not seeing that role and thinking this is transcendent no, stuff. I'm not, I'm not saying it's transcendent, but I think that he will get that nomination just out of the, the Academy going, good for you for doing something like <laughs> for, for taking that role initially. Like uh, There are a couple of actors out there who could say, yeah, I could do that. But someone like Topher Grace, who was on that 70s show, he's he looks like Luke Skywalker. He's he's a very unassuming kind of actor. No offense against him. I like him. Yeah. But he's, he doesn't have that kind of face about him of he's going to play this ridiculously racist person. Well, that's kind that's, of like the point. Yeah. And, and, and also not and to... he does really well as that. That's what I'm yeah. saying. And, and not to take away from, you know, Topher Grace's acting capabilities, but I think that says more about, uh, you know, the casting director or Spike Lee's choice to go, oh, this is the character I want, and I want that guy to play it, right? That's true, because if you look at the real David Duke, he's like a fucking ghoul. Like, yeah. he's the ugliest looking <laughs> oh, yeah. man on the planet. And if you have, like, a guy who looks like David Duke in the actual role of David Duke, yeah. you wouldn't buy it. You'd be like, this is too much. This yeah. is cartoonish. I think it's genius <laughs> casting in a way that it's not someone that you expect, and yeah. it's kind of, it plays off that weaseliness of Topher Grace, where it's like, what if that guy from that 70s show is a villain? is an actual villain yeah. this is how he'd act and i think that adds another kind of layer, layer to yeah it. to this whole so this to the to the movie you know to the plot of the movie and also to the kind of message it's trying to tell as mm. well which is like it's not the people who are overtly obviously menacing that are you know that that pose a threat to society i, I think the guys who look like ned flanders yeah i think um ne- uh, black Klansman also pointed out something else for me was that i kind of connect to specific events a little bit more if i can see them depicted in a really good movie like if i watch a really great documentary on a certain subject then i'll feel more about that real life subject and that's what Spike Lee does with the Charlottesville rallies because I'd heard about that and I was you know I thought oh god that's awful that's yeah. a, that's a terrible thing but I didn't feel some like terrible reaction I wasn't I wasn't sad about it. I, well, I mean I was sad just for the country but I wasn't feeling like this is absolutely awful that that something like this has happened I just felt like that's really really bad that shouldn't happen and but that's all I could that's all I could feel right with him depicting it First, you know, showing the movie as it is and then showing that stuff and relating the two and also releasing the movie in cinemas in America on the one year anniversary of that. All those stuff made me feel something more. Uh, the the end of that movie, when we all saw it at the screening, that yeah. was like a funeral. That yeah. was like, you, as Reese It was said, like stunned silence. Yeah, Reese said, you know, you can hear a pin drop. It was just that kind of reaction. It got to me and made me feel like holy yeah. shit because he composes those two things together well i'd say that's that's what the film is it's just contextualizing that riot because yeah. it completely connects to the film in like a loose way but that's to me that's what the film does is c- contextualize that yeah. in like a way you don't see coming but you make you, you kind of only make that connection when you see the footage play out mm-hmm. speaking of that ending a lot of people find it you know a lot of people I've spoken to, and naturally, it's not surprising that people find it a little too preachy. The uh, you know the ending of how it you know brings in documentary footage or like live real life footage of the the Charlottesville um, rally into into the movie. 
I can see it if you're like, oh yeah, we get it. But I think it's worth the movie is worth it for the fact that other people who don't think about this too too often you, you um, to ease, yeah. confront them with, hey, this is entertainment, yes, but also you have to think about these things. You can easily take that out if, like, I can see some people saying, "Oh, if you took that out, then the movie will be fa- will be fantastic." No, yes, you can. A lot, that, a, a lot of people are saying you that can, you can Don't take that, that out. But the problem, the problem that you find is that you lose some kind of meaning. To, it still has meaning, but there it is a pur- resonance. The, the, as I said, there is a purpose to him making that movie and g- generating around the one year anniversary of that, so he can specifically have that reaction from people whether it be positive or negative he wants to get that and that's yeah. the purpose and i really believe in that purpose i think and i think the fact is the movie wouldn't have happened without that end scene anyway like it's Not probably what it he's no building sense. up to yeah. yeah exactly how how we got into that footage is i think a brilliant piece of storytelling where it kind of fades you from the fictional world that it's depicting into real life in a very, um, in a way that I'm, you know, that's considered art. It's a, it takes the two main black characters in the movie and puts them, you know, like the end message is, you know, the fight's not over, you yeah, know, yeah, um, and yeah. and and it doesn't say that, you know, out outward outwardly, but it depicts it in in a very kind of visceral way see to me if like the film had what you just said i'd be like well that's pretty preachy like i can see it in the transition but because the film just did it through the transition to real life footage that's why i think it isn't preachy yeah and um if without that as well like you're it's just it exists in this vacuum of just being like a fun buddy cop movies about these guys killing racism yeah and winning so i think that's what grants it a kind of contemporary particularly Today, today resonance. Okay, Reese, what is your next? What is number your number four, four favorite movie of 2018? My number four um, is actually Crazy Rich Asians. Oh. oh, there you go. So I saw this one twice. I saw this one with Howie, and the second time I yeah. saw it with my Filipino friend, actually. And he like never watches rom coms, but he he really liked this one as well. Um, I don't really feel like I have to intellectualize this too much because I don't think it really like demands that of yeah. you. But what it does do, I think, it's it puts you in the shoes of like Constance Wu's character, who's like an Asian American immigrant, and she's in this like new society that's yeah, fish like, out of water. Fish out of water. But it's like a very specific feeling that I I can't really relate to because I've never had that life experience. Yeah. But as the film was going on, I was really feeling for her. Like, Rachel, wait, what's the actress's name? Constance Wu as Rachel. (laughs) She's like the perfect leading person in that way, where she doesn't steal the movie. Mm -hmm. She's not the standout. You're just in her shoes. Yeah. She's a good anchor. She's the best anchor. It's, It's like a remarkable performance. And I also think... After watching it, I came to the conclusion that cinema was made to put Gemma Chan in those dresses. Uh, it's fucking hell. Like, oh my goodness. It, yeah. was, it was lovely. Gemma Chan plays the sister-in-law? Yeah, Astrid. Of, the only yeah. nice member of, like, the man she's... Uh, her boyfriend's family. Extended family. She's, like, the only nice one. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, she's remarkable in it, too. The best wedding I've seen in a movie. I think that counts for something. It's bonkers. It's, yeah, it's, it's amazingly... I don't remember... I've, like... Weddings don't take my breath away, like in real life or in movies. Like I don't care. Like even the Godfather wedding, I'm like, I'm not thinking about the wedding. But yeah. for this one, this was this was like stunning. It really lives up to the crazy rich part of the of the yeah. movie, where it's yeah. just like, holy shit. The thing I loved about that wedding scene is, um, obviously, like the setup of it is like very like 
Asian looking for lack of a better word. Yeah. But the song that plays is like an Elvis Presley song. Yeah, that's um, right. Can't help falling in love with you. Yeah. And that to me sort of encapsulates the movie's vision of like Western influences and Asian things kind of coexisting in this beautiful yeah. harmony. Yeah. That's why I love that scene so much. And not to mention the and the the final song that they use. Yes, let's talk about that because yeah. me and Howie were talking about this. They play um, Cold plays Yellow, but uh, a a so Chinese weird. It's not cover. Weird. It's not weird at all. It's a Chinese cover of the uh, the Coldplay song Yellow, which yeah. uh, you know it it plays during the climactic emotional climactic moment of the it carries it through movie. to the ending. Yeah, yeah. And uh, what's the director's John Chu? John yeah. yeah, yeah. So uh, John Chu has a great story. Where um about how he obtained the rights to play the song Yellow, you know. So the first time he did it, he he wrote to Coldplay, "Hey, can we use our, you know Yellow in this movie, Crazy Crazy Rich Asians?" Yeah, no, and I, uh, I understand. You know, Coldplay was like, uh, "No," because <laughs> Coldplay assiduously avoids controversy. I don't know if yeah. you know, they're very bland. Um, it's part of their brand, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In, is, inoffensive. Yeah, yeah, inoffensive. Yeah, exactly. And um, he basically wrote another letter. Outlining how the song "Yellow" was the first time him and his Asian friends have ever heard of the the color having positive connotations and being, you know, not a slur for Asian people and and being, you know, referenced as something that is positive and empowering. Um, reading that um, letter, it's pretty. I never thought about it that way personally, but I've had those connections or those emotional connections to art that you know are not meant for me but i found some kind of personal connection to yeah and of course they said yes after that letter and not only did they just use yellow they used a chinese cover of yellow so every, you know people who are watching it um they know the song but yeah. they don't know the lyrics but yeah the point is that everyone knows what it is yeah it's, it's good because it's like you watch a standard rom-com and this is why i fucking disagree so hard that it's a standard rom-com because lots of rom-coms they just use like a a pop song to transition scenes just to give the scene like a feeling of a pulse yeah because what's yeah. going on isn't that interesting yeah they go to spruce it up somehow everyone's seen suicide squad <laughs> we, we know what we know what that means yeah, yeah but this it really meant something and i i was incredibly moved by it the choice of using that song can turn yeah. offensive so quickly yeah but it doesn't and i was and i think that that is a really in, incredible thing when, when i say that it's a standard rom-com i say that it is in plot wise that's not a slight against the movie it fits into that formula it's a good formula it's a formula we don't really yeah, see that the, much the, of the point i'm saying with this movie is that it doesn't matter what the plot is it's about how it's executed i yeah, think no, i agree i yeah. think that's because that. if you look at the marvel plots they're all the fucking same uh, but the it's executed differently and it's executed well for the most part that like nobody really cares yeah. so i think that's 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 what kind of matters more for like a popular movie for people who see like really popular i mean people who see movies like twice a year maybe yeah and you know maybe they feel something if they're lucky but i think this film ha like exceeds that and i think it's got like such a reach that's like important yeah it doesn't just feel like a stupid generic product uh, yeah and it, and it feels sort of weirdly timeless as well like obviously it's set in 2018 it says as much in the movie but it, it doesn't feel like too modern i don't know yeah. how to articulate it it feels sort of timeless in a way it feels classy that's, yeah that's sort of the best way i can my, put it my my biggest problem with it was i felt like the script needed to be a little bit better because my when when you have some really really great 
scenes between, say, Constance Wu and Michelle Yao. I can't remember the characters' names, but when like they're they're Michelle Yao, I have to correct you. You, sh- you just should hear my. You should hear when I do my searching review. <laughs> hear me say the producer's name, Timur Bikman Beethov. I I can't say names. I yeah. try my best. Just give me some give me some credit for that. But that's an interesting point. What do you mean by the script having to be, sort of be better? Be, because um, in in particular scene like uh, when um, Henry Golding is talk uh, uh, what's his name? What's the character's Nick. name? Nick. Nick. Nick is talking to his to his best mate. They're on that nice little sh- uh, 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 little boat dingy thing out the yeah. water, and he's talking. About, oh, you know, I'm gonna ask uh, her to marry me. The way that they are talking to each other, I get the meaning behind that, but they don't talk like real people. They're talking like book characters, and that's because it's based off a book, so I can really see that the writers took, you know, dialogue from the book and just said, oh, this is what we're going to do. It just does, it's so uh, exposition heavy. It kind of got a little grating at one point. It gets better. There's some great scenes between them, but I feel like they were just on paper. There's a lot of dialogue that just feels really kind of static. That feels really kind of uh, just revise yeah. that a bit. Yeah, yeah, I I get what you're saying, uh, but I think that there are cases in the movie where the dialogue is just like pure function. Yeah, like it's just there to tell you what's going on. Yeah. But when it matters, the dialogue is fucking crisp. Like yeah. um, when Michelle Yeoh tells Rachel that she'll never be enough. Like that line shouldn't really work. I don't know. It's not impactful enough. It's kind of weak. But the way she delivers it and the way where it's placed, yeah. like the, the staging of the scene yes, where they're the on the steps. stairs yeah. and she's advancing on her, it's, yes. it's like a knife to the heart. Like, I really felt for her in that moment. That, it's, it's that, pretty great. I, yeah, that's, that's where I feel like when I'm talking about, like, the execution kind yeah. of overriding stuff that's, like, functional. Like, it's fine. Yeah, yeah. I, know, I know what you're saying there. I think you might be turning me around a little bit just because... What? <laughs> You know, his positivity uh, is very... It, it uh, makes magnetic. Yeah. You, can, you can really and, latch on And look, it. when thinking about this movie and, like, thinking about where I should place it, I feel the need to kind of separate, like, my excitement for, you know, an Asian-centric story. And, you know, like, okay, I need to think about this objectively, I guess. But every time I talk about this movie, I'm like, oh, it's okay. And then there are these scenes. I kind of feel emotional. Yeah, just talking about you know scenes in the movie, just hearing about that scene on the stairs, you know, which is it was a moment where in the theater I was like, "Damn, this is like great visual storytelling." It right is. Now. People gasped. Yeah, when it happened. You yeah. think like a uh, fucking Tony Stark just got stabbed? <laughs> like that's what the reaction was. And there are just so many powerful scenes in this movie to a point where I felt like I wanted the movie to give me answers. You know, like with the yeah. with the questions that it poses, just because it's so obviously specific to you know, I am a Chinese Malaysian. Yeah, it's so specific, like the cultural clashes. You know, I'm a Chinese Malaysian person in Australia. Yeah. You know, it's it's so familiar to me that I'm like, what are they trying to say? You know, what what's the right answer here? Ultimately, it's a rom com, so it doesn't fully answers that. So you can't it, help but feel like a little bit let. Down. I I can't help but. Um, like visualize a better movie yeah. that dives deeper into these themes. But I think that's also unfair, an unfair expectation to put on a fun, you know, like what's supposed to be like a highly entertaining, you know, fun blockbuster rom-com. That's why I'm a little, I'm a little afraid about because they said, oh, yeah, we're going to do two sequels because there's two book, two other books that yeah. they wrote. I don't know about that because the story kind of wraps up perfectly. I mean, 
sure. There are a few threads. Astrid's the main character in the next book, and I think that would be that would be an amazing choice if they sent her. That's what they're gonna do. Yeah. She needs more to do. I really felt like she had didn't have her storyline was so odd. Kind so of. As, just, Astrid like a, being um, so she's one of the side characters, the sister in law. To Constant and Wu's. Well, almost sister in law, I guess. Yeah. And she has her side, uh, her side storyline in the movie where her husband is uh, essentially intimidated by her wealth and success and her family's wealth. And, and that's what, you know, like that's the crux of the plot, I guess. Yeah, it's like not intermingled with every. It's almost like a parallel plot. Yeah. Like, she's like Rachel's mirror or something. Yeah. So I, I th- it was kind of sort of not fully fleshed out. That yeah, it was, so it's here and there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that that is you know those are some of my main criticisms of the movie. Where like what could be like that is actually a very heavy theme. Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> that the movie only lightly touches on. But I guess if they're going to focus it on focus on it more on the sequel. Um, I'm excited to see that. Well, they even give her a post-credit scene, technically. With a, they did with Harry Shum Jr. Yeah, who's playing this character called Charlie Wu, who's apparently her love interest. What is your number four my, favorite? Mine movie? is uh, Hereditary. Oh, oh, that is in my top five as well. Nice. Yes. Is it in your top five, Riz? Uh, yes, I think so. Why don't we use this opportunity to just all talk about? It? Uh, yeah, of course. That's, yeah. that's great. Yeah. I okay, so I'll start first. This film is absolutely great. The more I think about it, I need to watch it again because I want to do a full video essay on just how it really kind of changed a lot of ways that I saw horror films, how how they're made, how they're put together, how you get a great cast and music and editing. The, the editing is amazing. There's so much that I loved about this movie. and But the, the, the thing that, that I kept thinking about it was, because there was a poster when me and my brother went to go see it. There was a poster that they had, you know, they said Hereditary. Yeah. And it had quotes, you know, from movie critics, people saying, it's the scariest film ever made. And it's like... <laughs> I hate I hate when movies do that, and that's not a slight against the movie. It's a slight against the uh, against well critics in, in general. I would never say this is the scariest movie ever made because scares are subjective. People can find the the third Paranormal Activity movie to be the scariest film they've ever made because it jump scares you and makes you feel like oh my god that was so scary. Scaring to me is more about me feeling very unsettled. I feel unsettled when I watch The Exorcist because it's a 12-year-old girl getting possessed. I feel unsettled when I'm watching The Shining because I'm watching Stanley Kubrick just going absolutely nuts. I feel I feel unsettled when I watch The Thing because it looks real, and I feel unsettled when I watch Hereditary, which I would put in the same kind of category of great horror movies. I feel unsettled when I watch that movie because... It's such a real family. It's a real family that I, I feel like I could know that there's parts of it that like I feel like my own family, the, the, the mother and the father, brother and sister, they all feel like real people. They, 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 their struggle of grief and trying to like kind of deal with the leftover, the, the remains of what their grandmother, you know, what, what she's left behind. Sure, it goes really, really weird in this movie, but that's a real kind of thing that a lot of people go through. They have to kind of deal with, okay, what is this person left behind their life? You know, what what, what kind of secrets are out there? You you ha- you always you go through that sort of stuff. A lot of people go through that sort of stuff. So this is a movie that's rooted in perfect reality, which is great because the writer director Ariaster takes that, makes it realistic, and then goes. 
let's go really crazy with it. Let's add in a demon king and let's add in this secret cult of a bunch of 65 plus year olds all <laughs> naked in a circle around this house. Let's kill a dog. Um, let's just go absolutely bonkers. And I loved it. It was so ambitious. It's pushed the, it pushed horror, modern horror, because horror movies have been really, really good recently. Like, uh, there's a lot of horror movies which I've watched and, you know, first thought, oh, that might not be that cool, but ended up really loving. And this is one of those movies that really kind of pushed it and has set the bar so high that another horror movie that I've seen recently, The Nun, looks so worse compared to it because I keep thinking, why can't you be like this? Why can't you? It's not that hard. Well, I mean, it's difficult to make a movie, but it's not that hard to take a really cool story. And, and make it realistic, add in great characters, add in a great story, add in all these wonderful elements, and then you can go crazy. You can add in weird Catholic demon stuff. That's all fun and good, but you have to have a good uh, 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 structure behind that. You have to have a good through line, and that's what Hereditary did. I absolutely love it, and I need to watch it again. Yeah, um, I'll, I'll totally agree with that. And also, Tony Collette's performance. Amazing. Uh, yeah, she is utterly fucking twisted in the movie. And I think my favorite thing about it is uh, sort of like what you were saying, is that for the first like hour and a half or something, you, it doesn't have the atmosphere of a horror movie. Yeah. Like, we're in a normal horror movie, like, the ordinary would have this faint, sinister feel to it. Mm-hmm. In this, it's just like very average like it's just normal yeah there's some artsy shots even of like a dollhouse you know there's these kind of illusions that maybe they're in a dollhouse maybe some larger forces are playing with them yeah that opening scene is very it it really absorbs you into the movie it's really quick it's very kafka-esque yeah no that's a good word i think that's i think that's very accurate too and i think when the film uh, makes you feel the horror it's doing it at the best moments like yeah it knows how to twist your nerve yeah. and then like really pinch it it's never feels like it's trying too hard except i would except, argue yeah with the last 10 minutes i, I was just gonna say that yeah, yeah with the ghost stuff i yeah. was like this feels like a lot yeah you know, it feels like it's really in your face with what it's doing <laughs> but i still liked it it's it was entertaining and weird and gross and i was digging it but um the grief stuff was really made me feel sick because Everyone could relate to that. Like, if you haven't even been through it yet, you're going to go through that kind of feeling. So I think that's why that universal emotion is so frighteningly portrayed in this movie because, you know, we can't avoid that and we know it. So, yeah, that really... I was thinking about that for days after I saw it. I was kind of ruined my afternoon in a good way. (laughs) What did you think of it, Howard? Uh, Yeah, this movie is in my top... It's my number three. Yeah. And it's... uh, It's very interesting... That, you know, like, it's obviously it's a family drama first and a horror movie second. And ironically enough, I feel like uh, when it veers deep into horror territory, the movie's less effective to me. So obviously they go all out in the final 10 minutes. And that was when I was slowly being less engaged with the movie. The minute where that human element is kind of gone, I just start losing interest. It's a, you know, it's an amazing movie. But I think why it's so great is that it, it's kind of like a Trojan horse. Um, the, the Trojan horse being, hey, this is a horror movie. But um, what it is, it's actually a very serious, bleak 
family drama. You know, speaking of being scared and the unsettling nature of the movie, the most horrific moment of the movie barely has anything to do with a demon coming to get them or or whatever. Yeah. It's a, at least on paper, it's a mistake that yeah. a character made. Yeah. And I was watching it and I was like, it could happen to me. Yeah. This could have happened that's to me. That's when it's and, and that's when it's at scariest. It has nothing to do with demons. Mm. But it could easily have played as a kid had an accident and has to grapple with the ram- ramifications of that. The way that Ariasta, he layers in all these little bits. And the, 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 the realistic stuff is important because that's the story he's telling. But he's also making a horror movie, so he has to have... It's it's Chekhov's gun. It's the kill the cat screenwriting. You have to have... If he's setting up all this weird stuff, you have to have that payoff. And for me, the payoff isn't terrifying. It's not It's not making me think, oh my God, this is so amazing. I was like almost laughing because I was having so much fun. Yeah. I was having so much fun watching Tony Collette almost <laughs> cut her own head off and banging against the wall. And then there's all the naked people. And, and then, then they're all bowing down to beheaded mother and daughter. And then he's the new demon king. Like that's so weird. And I, I love that. I actually think it's not weird enough i feel like once it gets to the horror part it's very conventional yeah it's conventional horror horror. oh nick yeah like it's it i think it's a great use of naked people as something scary like i think that's a a genius move but you know it's been done before in other movies and it's just like oh this is when the movie starts going through the motions of horror movie tropes and you're just like oh yeah okay but um there isn't really a there isn't really a closure to the story that the you know the family drama that we've been watching. There's there is a closure to the movie as a whole, which is the horror you know you know the horror aspect of it. I but I felt like like emotionally the movie we I I don't think we got closure, but maybe that's the point of the movie. I, I think that I think it's the but, point. I think it's the point that that, yeah. that, that is not closure because he did. Um, I I went on a. I just wanted to know everything about the guy who made it. So I watched his uh, short film called We Need to Talk About the Johnsons, which this is Boiler Nation. So it's about a son that rapes his father and continuously does it over the pe- over a period of like t- 10, 15 years. It's so just like, what the... F- it, it makes you feel like so unsettled. So he's really great at that. But he doesn't have that closure of of why he's doing it. It just is. He shows you as it is, and then lets you kind of fill in the blanks right. in, in a way. So it's a very it's very ambitious, very kind of Kubrickian. In comparison, like because this is an A twenty four film, yes, and it's an A twenty four horror movie, yeah. and their other big kind of movie was for A twenty four horror the was Witch. the Witch. Yeah. Now I like that movie. I thought it was better than a lot of people. People were saying like, oh, it's so scary. And I thought it was very unsettling. Same thing with this. But my problem with that in comparison to Hereditary is that that movie doesn't set up enough the ending of it. It doesn't feel like the rest of of the movie clearly sets up what is going to happen. Isn't that movie like about her like breaking free of her father and becoming like empowered and stuff yeah thematically yes but i'm i'm meaning like how hereditary sets up you know there's a demon king payment and he uh, does he, there's a yes, there's specific things yes that they put in there then they lean that back into uh, the, uh, oh, the movie of course that's what i'm saying it pays off the plot of the right. movie like uh, for sure and it's you know it's fun but I wanted it to pay off the emotional, thematic elements of the movie. I feel like 
they got to a point where like a really high point mm. in terms of the interactions between the characters. Yeah, and then it's like, oh, how do we release this tension? Let's throw horror in there, and that's it. You know, I feel like cop out is a strong word, but I feel like if only they have found a way to wrap up or or you know wrap up that character element of their story before throwing us into into it doesn't have to explain why people are doing something it's just that the characters have to understand has to has to come to grips with what they've done or what they mean to each other or or something something like that some recognition with these characters you know even if it's at the end I they touch on it lightly, but I feel like it wasn't enough. Where you know maybe the mom was like, "I've made a horrible m- mistake," and kind of grapple with with that. I, I think it's just, you can make the same, pretty much the same exact argument about The Shining because that's about a father that has previously abused his son and he's abusing his family pretty much because he's in his cabin. So it, it, there is a lot of th- themes. There's very similar themes. Kubrick doesn't really care about having some having some closure for for that for that story he wants he wants to show you something unsettling something dark and that's what this direct ariaster wants to do as well that's interesting i don't don't really particularly see how you see i can understand it but that's not how i feel about the movie but that's interesting you bring up the shining because i think the shining has closure with the with especially with the wife and son you know it's about them escaping this oppressive force they, that's within they, the hotel but they had no like jack jack is the biggest threat to them they have no threat between them like then they're, they're not they're not they don't have a massive fight during the film whereas in in hereditary yes you have tony collette and um uh alex wolf he they're, they're having they're having large conflict it's more like you know the, the father and the son yeah they uh they don't they they have that kind of relationship where they just always are with each other kind of they might have you know a little bit of a uneasiness but they still are, are on each other's side they don't have the particular closure because they already have a good relationship and it's it's horrible to watch that break apart and completely dissolve by external forces and that's what I. That's why I, I have see. to kind of push back on the Shining there as well. It's at the beginning of the Shining. It's there's this conversation. I forgot it was a doctor between the doctor and the mom, and and you know asking about, hey, what happened to the son's like the son was hurt or something like that, and then she says, oh, you know, my husband came in, he was drunk, and he accidentally. Did, you know, an accident happened, and that's how my son or some—it's either her or her son was hurt because of that, and then he stayed sober since. Mm. And then his descent into violent, murderous rage, and them escaping it is—is is the payoff. Like I get it, I get the character payoff that I wanted from this movie. So, but I didn't get that in Hereditary. It's just that they set up these characters, great drama, great conflict, and then horror comes in and it jars everything like everything comes to a halt and you're i'm like okay yes this is the genre that i'm watching so i i guess i'll have to go with it that, that's what i was saying it's, it's Chekhov's gun you have to have that payoff to the setup whether whether it works for you or not it's it's necessary you can't ex- but the thing is i agree with yeah. what you just said but that's not what the movie didn't do that for okay. me it didn't pay off the Chekhov's gun of 
the yeah. it, the family conflict that they set up in the beginning. Well, the thing um just sort of it's sort of related, but you know, have you guys seen the first season of True Detective? Yes. Yeah. They set up all these elements with Carcosa and the Yellow King, and you think the show is going to be about that towards yes, the end. Yeah, yeah. But the thing is, is that those are just sort of red herrings and the true nature of evil is not explained. Mm-hmm. But I feel like Hereditary tries to explain the source of evil mm-hmm. as like an mm-hmm. actual demon king yeah. puppeting this family. And to me, that's just not as scary because it's like, I know what's doing that to them. It's that. Howie, I think you're up. Yeah. My number four movie is not unlike Her- Hereditary. It's A Quiet Place. Um, It's also like a family drama disguised as a horror movie Mm -hmm. as well. John Krasinski's sophomore directorial effort. Um, It's obviously the movie is a family has to survive in a world where aliens react to sound. So they have to be quiet. Um, uh, It's a great two hand, I guess, essentially a two hander between John Krasinski and Emily Blunt. And then you've got the two kid children characters as well yep. and i think this is a great blockbuster movie it's a fun time at the movies there's uh the premise is creative the way it's shot is you know like um in combination with the premise is in, in a kind of unique way as well and um a lot of care uh, was taken into developing the characters which i love you know it sets up like emotional stakes and it pays them off and it's just a great, fun time at the movies. Like, not to understate this, it's highly original. Like, how yeah. many movies are mostly silence? Yeah, like they use minimal silence. dialogue. I agree. That was, that's not one of my favorites, but that was like a really fun movie to watch. Yeah, and we're talking about Hereditary, saying it's you know it's this family story wrapped into this kind of horror movie. I think I would say that A Quiet Place does that family story maybe a little bit better because you love this family so much more. My problem with it is how it actually as I said, how it executes the actual creatures. Because when they pop up, I was a little underwhelmed. I was a little just thinking, they look like, you know, aliens that I've seen in bloody, in, um, uh, they look like, Str- and, they look, yeah, they look like yeah. the rejected design from Stranger Things. Yeah, yeah. But that's, I, I'll push back on that, son. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't matter what they look like. The yeah. scariest thing in the movie that happens is when they make a sound. Exactly. And they know it's coming. I, I that's think, the yeah. scary thing. The creatures are irrelevant. It's a great thrill ride, but I felt by the end... I don't feel everything that a lot of people, a lot of other people are feeling. By the end, I was thinking, so the alien's weakness is the same from the aliens from Mars Attacks, where you can just use a powerful high-pitched noise and their heads explode, because that's exactly what happened. I, I, but my, no, <laughs> Nobody I, saw that. Except I did. That was like a childhood. Favorite. I saw that as well. Yeah. Maybe this was a homage to that movie. Who possibly, knows? Possibly, possibly. Uh, but I think what you just mentioned is also why I love this movie, which is at its core, it's a movie about communication. It's a, com- yeah. a movie about communication between the ones that you love and what the lack of communication can foster. Yeah. And what's brilliant about the premise is that it reflects, it uses you know the plot elements to reflect the theme back because it's not that they're just, it's not that these characters aren't literally communicating. They're also not communicating in a, in a metaphorical sense. You know, the daughter feels guilty about her brother's death and that causes a divide between her and her father and that like leads them down a path where they are in more danger you know so and and the emotional climax of the movie is literally the dad just screaming like i love you yeah 
And, that's why and that I felt think, so cathartic, actually. Yeah, it really did. And all the yeah. alien bullshit is incidental. It's not the point of the movie. If you're really into your aliens, and I can see why it could be disappointing, but this movie knows exactly what it wants, and it's to tell a great story about family and communication, and it does that well. And it's not, the focus isn't, look how scary this monster looks. Yeah. Now we're up to all Reese's <laughs> top five. <laughs> So what have I done? Christopher Robin, Crazy Rich Agents, and now Avengers Infinity War. Wow. Avengers okay. Infinity okay. War. I knew that would be in there somewhere. That's a, that's a top five one. Could put it at any number, um, really. But um, I this might be one of the most rewatchable movies I've ever seen because there's uh, so much going on and every bit of it is entertaining. Not equally entertaining, but all of it works really well together. And um, I'm noticing upon rewatching it like many times. I'm not, I don't even want to say how many times. I have Lux Count actually. Wow. Just got it on Blu-ray. It's pretty good. Um, every single line of dialogue is either like fleshing out a relationship, moving the plot forward, or is meant to make the audience laugh. And it's so what I mean is that despite the sheer amount of shit stuffed into it, it's incredibly efficient and coherent. There's no fat. There's no fat whatsoever. And you can point out holes in like Thanos's plan. Like, why doesn't he make, you know, because everyone's seen this, right? You you know the basic plot. Yeah. You could say, oh, why doesn't he make more resources if he wants to solve the population thing? And I'm like, who cares? Like, that's such a boring sort of answer to that like i think him having the threat of wiping out half of everybody and you know that's like fine enough motivation for me but the thing that was great was that josh brolin's actual motion capture performance and the actual like graphics they did to render his face and his emotions was extremely impressive i think that should get them some kind of i don't know award (laughs) well now that best visual film is out of the way yeah i mean (laughs) It was it was really great. I, I would have liked to have seen more Captain America, obviously, because he's like my favorite yes, Avenger. And he not, definitely got the shaft, right? Yeah. Yeah, he got the shaft big his time. His scenes are amazing, though. That entrance. Everything. he They, they don't, like, waste any of his scenes. Yeah. Like, the entrance yeah. of the Captain America team was, like, bone-chilling. Because yeah. you're just like, oh, shit, they're here to save today. Yeah, it was absolutely wonderful. And, like, I'm a big comic book nerd, and I've read, like, event comic books, which are massive crossovers. And this is the first comic book movie that distills that feeling of reading one of those things like perfectly which i think makes it unique actually despite the size of the cast or whatever and uh yeah if it kind of this movie might lower in estimation depending on what's followed up with because this is like a part one it is yeah of a movie and if the follow-up is not satisfactory i think that would color my feelings on this movie somewhat but but as it stands, even on its own, it's just hugely entertaining and fun. And I couldn't not put it in my top five. I just had to. I had to, Jerry. Mm. And um, But me and Chris, and, wait, me, Howie, I have a disagreement with Chris about <laughs> with regards to Elizabeth Olsen. And, um, oh, yeah. Okay. Paul Bettany. Okay. Uh, uh, you know, they set up the Jeopardy competently. Like, it's perfectly fine. Like, you understand. You even understand why they like each other. Like, they've done work to establish their weird relationship. It's just a matter of the actors who are really good individually. Yeah. I mean, it's... Yeah. They're great individually. But together, I feel like no heat. Like, there's nothing... You know, you don't watch these movies for the romance, I guess, but you want to feel something more than you want to believe that she's sad when, you wanna, when yeah, you want to believe they really yeah. desire each other yeah. and stuff. But it feels <laughs> not completely there for me. I didn't really feel it 
like every time those two are talking together, that's probably like the few times where I'm thinking, can we like get to these people yeah. in this scene here? Yeah. But what did you think, Chris? Like you thought, because you disagree, I, I can tell. Full confessional. I cried when Vision died. See, because he does feel things. He's not I just a f- robot. I know. I am I'm a very feeling person. I feel a lot of emotions at many different things that people might think are weird, <laughs> especially feeling emotion about a robot being killed by his girlfriend. I think that that is very powerful. I loved as soon as they as soon as they showed Vision and uh, Wanda in the little hotel room. Just yeah. the idea that they have been spending like two months just being with each other in this beautiful countryside in this gorgeous hotel room. I love that. It makes me happy as the true romantic. They, they, they have a good chemistry because I watched their interviews uh, off off screen. No, and no, but this is the movie. Chris. Okay, no, so, okay, so <laughs> I, that, that that fuels it because I know that they're also having fun. I believe their relationship when when Vision kisses Wanda's hand as she's touching his face. Uh, that's a beautiful cringe, little moment. I cringe. Lo- no, I'm sorry. I did. I, Maybe it's a CGI. No, Maybe no, it's a CGI. No, no, this is interesting because you know how you're talking about the interviews, Chris, where I believe in person when they're just themselves, they do have great chemistry. I'm just thinking as performers, they don't. <laughs> but I do. I, I, I think it, maybe this is just a matter of perspective. I don't think there's yeah, any... Mate, yeah, mate. I don't think there's any objective way to say these actors don't like well, like unless there's wait, wait, a, if, unless no, there's no. offset stuff about how they hate each other or something no like no that. but if we're talking about what made you feel like they did have chemistry did you was, did you because just feel it, it because it's little moments and also it's it's little setups from particularly captain america civil war when they're making food together and she's yeah and she tells him you know that you're being awkward because you're just barging into people's rooms and he's wearing his little jumper and he looks so adorable no no i don't disagree that on a plot level they've set up a relationship like as Threadbare as it sort of is, I, uh, they've done it, but it's just for some reason when the actors are speaking to each other, it's just not clicking. Okay, it's a matter of perspective. Yeah. I, I'm not, I'm not gonna just attack you guys saying you are wrong. I loved it. It was beautiful. No, no, but you, can you, did, that. That. you did, yeah. that. you no, did that. Like, you did that. No, you did exactly that. It's that's a facade. That's <laughs> you guys have your perspective. I was listening to your episode. I was feeling like. Oh man, I just disagree. But the point, you know what? That 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 actually brought some positive stuff because that's the reason why I'm here. Because I really wanted to just just to talk have, about this. Have a small discussion. Okay, you about can go this. now. I guess. <laughs> cool. Uh, you know, the you bus, said is, your bus is almost here. Uh, let's just talk about Infinity War in general. This movie is great. I put it on uh, number three as well. I think it's absolutely. It's not my best. It's not my favorite MCU movie because I just still love the Avengers, and every time I watch it, it just gets me. Oh, do you like the first Avengers more than Infinity War? Yes. Oh, interesting. Because I remember exactly where I was when I saw it. I remember exactly the kind of feeling that I had when I see it. And every time I watch that one shot where it goes from Hawkeye to Iron Man and he flies down to the bridge and it's the music playing. The the score is so perfect. There's so much that I love about the movie. And the same thing with Infinity War is that the dialogue is so... I find it to be so impeccable because it it, it all has a purpose. Yeah. Sure, there, there's little things about Infinity War that kind of... They, they, they become more apparent when I watch it again. The CGI for War Machine and uh, uh, Bruce Banner's heads, both when they're in their suits, is really... like yeah, when, the floating when, heads. Yeah, the floating head stuff is very apparent. Um, Captain America has very little to do. He's just the guy who knows a guy. I know Black Panther, and I know where you know uh, the. I know where the Avengers headquarters are. Let, let, let's go. I'm still the leader. Yay! But I really like the movie. But I'm still kind of holding back on saying this is a great movie. This is one of the greatest superhero movies ever. I'm holding back on that because it's a part one. I need to see part two. If part two sticks the landing, then this is a great 
you know, double whammy of you've done it. You've made the culmination. This is the full culmination. Because everyone's saying it's the it, this is the final thing. This is 20 years. Oh, we'll lean up to this moment. It's leading up to a few moments, but not. it's not leading up to everything. Wait, and wait. that's still part two. I need to interject here. Um, I want to take back my comment about it being a part one. <laughs> Just thinking about it because I think Thanos gets the most screen. He's like the driving force of the plot. And he has goals that he wants to fulfill and he fulfills them. At and the, the end, yeah. And the last shot is him having fulfilled his goals. Yeah. So in a weird way, it is self-contained, like as odd as that sounds. In, yeah, yeah. And it's like a hell of a last shot to go out on this just like quiet moment of him oh, it, just it's, reflecting. It's, it's, abs- it's With like those strings. It's fantastic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Man. Okay. <laughs> so yeah, that's my thoughts on Infinity oh. War. Great. Uh, okay, so let's move on to... No, it's your turn, it's turn. Chris. Um, uh, what is your number three? You might, you guys might not like me for this one. Um, I this oh, that's one, already happened. No, this one, <laughs> this one, or this one took me a little while to really kind of feel. And when I felt it, I was, I felt kind of free. I felt like, oh, okay, I can actually feel like this. It's Mission Impossible Fallout. Oh yeah, I mean, yeah. why would no, no, we no, dude, not because like when it? I when I listened to your guys last episode, you were a little bit more. This is good. Yeah, that's, but I mean, just, that's our feelings. Though. Yeah, but no, yeah. no, no. They, but like for me, I'm, I'm just like fantastic, and I love it. No, no, convince us. No, no, because Fallout, um, all the flaws that I initially had, like Vanessa Kirby's character, the White Widow, I felt like she was a little odd when I watched it again. I was like, no, she's really, really cool. I really like what they did with her, and I want to see more from her. I wanted to be in Mission Impossible Seven. I don't care. She's great. The things that I felt were a little odd just weren't that anymore i didn't feel weird about certain little lines of dialogue i didn't i still loved henry cavill being this just dick bad guy who's just gonna push tom cruise away and say no i'm going skydiving then i'm gonna get hit by lightning because i'm i'm cool and i got a mustache (laughs) i i love that there's so much of this film that was so that spoke to me again as the cinematography dude there's Rob Hardy, who uh, he's also shot my number one pick. Try and guess what that is. But he, he is so impeccable when it comes to what he can do with placement of camera when, when he's putting it on the front of motorbikes and cars. And it's the, just the perfect one-point perspective when it's going down the streets of Paris. I and, like that, yeah. And the natural Dutch angles where it's just slowly turning just slightly to the left when Tom, when Ethan is, is hanging off from the cable uh, onto the helicopter and it's just making you feel like, oh God, this is so awful. He is so particular about that and he works so brilliantly with Christopher McQuarrie, who I honestly think is probably my, like in my top 10 best directors working right now. What, is, else, what else did he direct? He directed for uh, Rogue Nation, um, Jack Reacher, which I think is actually better than people give it credit for, the first one. Um, and also Way of the Gun, which I haven't seen, but I remember watching the first like five minutes and not being really into it. Most people don't actually like it. But um, what he was able to do with Jack Reacher, how he's able to do cars and, and like the sound of, of cars when he when he's having the yeah. car chase. Rogue Nation is a little, is better than, than Fallout for me. That's my still my favorite because I still go back to it and it's just such a solid, really good movie. And before that, it just showed me so much more of his eye, what he can do with not only this franchise, but what he can do with camera, what he can do with characters, what he can do with his own script, how he works. He wrote, he wrote a 33-page script. That was the initial script. There's just 33 pages, and they pretty much made up everything as they went along, which is absolutely bonkers, and no other movie will be able to succeed like that because no other movie has ever succeeded like that. 
but this one does. This one feels clean and tight, and the, the story, while it's very complex, and it can take you a little while <laughs> to go, all right, hang on, which plutonium core is where? Wait, so they have two, but who has the uh, the other one? And who's the who's John Lark again? What's the Apostles? It, it is a little hard to try to get everything in there. But when you kind of, when you break it down and you watch it again, it, it starts to make much more sense. I love Mission Impossible Fallout. It's just such a freaking great movie. Um, yeah, I, it's <sighs> it's a it's a fun action movie. It's you know very great car chases, great fighting, love it. And but it's very interesting that you said it. He wrote thirty three pages of the script and then made shit up after because he he worked as a writer first that's how he that's how he writes he's very kind of manic but he 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 doesn't like just do it just because oh i have no idea but he wants to have the outline and then see where he can go he's very improvisational in that fashion right and tom cruise loves that because they can create these action sequences and pretty much write the movie around that which sounds terrible i think it works really it works really well especially with um, mission impossible fallout but i think there is something inherently i would always want to say it works well for a movie that is improvised for its most part because mm. it did really feel like like you said um the movie is written around these action scenes that's at the end of the day, I guess that's all you kind of want. Mm. But I feel like um, why it's not in my top five is because the story is unnecessarily complicated, I, I think. but I'm not, not going to argue with you because it's going to take way too long. <laughs> but it's I loved it. You know, like it was a fun ride. It was the action scenes. Like I was actually interested in a car chase scene, which is um, which does not happen often yeah because you think they've done been done every which way yeah this one actually is super engaging yeah yeah and all the action scenes are very inventive um but yeah it just kind of misses the mark for me i i think after mad max fury road came out i think i just hold every action movie to that standard where it's thematically coherent and you know the action scenes are great and you know it doesn't need like a convoluted plot to make a art like a kind of an artistically impactful movie mm. i mean obviously um mission impossible maybe isn't really even going for that mm. but i think that's like kind of why it's not it's very ambitious in terms of its action set pieces and that's great but that's not enough for me yeah i guess i i kind of agree with that because um it just takes me as so far as what crazy thing is tom cruise gonna do and then i see it and i'm like amazed but the it doesn't go beyond that as much yeah, for me either. Yeah. But um, it's very good for what it does. Yeah. Trying to I think do. it's a good pick for a top yeah. five. Yeah, for sure. Mad Max Fury Road is is a different movie. Its action sequences are completely different to what Mission Impossible does because it, it's all Mad Max is all about just throwing weird, awesome, big stuff that you've never seen before. I've never seen a flaming guitar on top of a giant truck that's like a hundred feet that's okay that's crazy it's crazy stuff whereas mission impossible is all about like this is one person doing this real stuff they're not throwing rebecca ferguson and henry cavill and simon peck and ving rames and jeremy ren or whatever all into he was not in this movie but like they're not throwing them all into the helicopter i think i'm just a big up mission impossible fan because i binge watched all of the movies right before this. yeah i'm not yeah, <laughs> that's the thing. I, I think like that's where I go to, where I can look at these movies and see something more than just Tom Cruise does crazy shit, 
which he still does. So that's fine. Okay, so I'll go with my number two. Yep. Which is um, a little Netflix movie called um, Annihilation. Oh yes, very interesting one. We, we talked, talked about, about it. We talked about it, and was your fe- have your feelings changed or what? Uh, my feeling is that I wish I could have seen it in the theaters. Yeah, absolutely. Like, I think I would. It would have been a transcendent experience, mm-hmm. especially the the ending. I like it more. I think back to it fondly. I like it's a very cerebral. It makes you think. It's that you know, like you always get that one you know best cerebral movie of the year. And I think, I think Annihilation really hits that spot i felt me. like when i was watching it like when i did when i was watching under the skin yes which is another sort of alien movie i think we made that com- yeah. comparison in our discussion for annihilation as well the alienoid shape in both annihilation and in under the skin they look similar they look the, like, from the same species yeah yeah <laughs> i wouldn't be surprised if they're like if they announced they're in the same universe <laughs> the or annihilation whatever. extended universe yeah but everything yeah. just gets destroyed. Yeah. Great performances by um, Natalie Portman, uh, Jennifer Jason Lee, Gina Rodriguez. Yep. Tessa Great. Thompson. Tessa Thompson. Mm-hmm. It's the, the ensemble cast Oscar is amazing. Isaac. Yeah. Oscar and Isaac. Oscar Isaac, of course. It's one of the gems uh, on Netflix. I think, you know, good on Netflix for buying it. I um I really like that guy's other film too, uh, Ex Machina. Alex Garland. Alex Garland. What a, what a fucking guy. Like, yeah. He really has a, a stamp on his movies. They feel a yeah. certain way. They mm-hmm. don't feel like anything else. It feels almost like a cross... It's, it's like you've taken acid and then you're in like a, like a spa house. Yeah. And you're wandering around. Like, <laughs> yeah. It feels very serene, but at the same yeah. time, fucking unsettling. Mm. Yeah, yeah I agree. Like his stuff. Yeah. So that's my number two pick. So I guess we'll go ones. number ones now. Yes. Annihilation is absolutely fantastic. It's I watched it with my brothers at home. We cranked up, cranked up the surround sound. It was fantastic. I love that movie. I absolutely love that film. It is not. It is my number one uh, pick for for best film this year. I unless like I don't know if Bill Street can talk could talk, which is Barry Jenkins' new movie that's coming out. If that's great if that's truly amazing or if first man's truly amazing there's a there's a lot of great movies that are coming out later this year but still annihilation just blew my socks off i love i love science fiction i'm the biggest i'm a huge science fiction fan i love alex garland i think he's a fantastic writer and director he has written novels before that have really gone into my head like it, not just not the beach i haven't read, read that one but i read his other book which people don't know about it's called the coma and it's basically about a man who is trying to is like struggling with the ideas of dreams and life and and he he, he writes as if you are actually in a dream like he had writes in these random words yeah, yeah, you, sometimes yeah. you have that dream where you start to say start to think of random combinations of words that's how he writes he's a very intriguing very interesting very unique writer and annihilation did things that I've never seen in a film before. I've never seen a man bear crossover that could that could scream help me which terrified the living shit out of me. I've never seen a, a, a creature that that mimics that that the whole end sequence of of the the, the alien mimicking Natalie Portman's movements and it's in, in, it's sucking her inside and, and investing her. It's like watching this this horrible, more nightmare version of the thing. He does so many different things that I absolutely love. The score by Jeff Barrow and Ben Salisbury. I've listened to it so many times. It really gets inside yeah. my head. Uh, Rob Hardy's cinematography. There you go. Spoiler. He's the other uh, guy shot. <laughs> Top two picks are just both shot by Rob Hardy. Beautiful cinematography. It's the best that I've seen 
all year. He d- there is so much that I absolutely love about this film. I really need to see it again and again and again. I I, I could talk for hours about the themes and about characters, <laughs> all that kind of stuff. Go see it right now. It's Thank not you. going anywhere. It's on, it's on no, exactly. uh, okay, I guess we're up to me now. My, yeah, my number, number one. one? Uh, my number one is uh, You Were Never Really Here. Oh. I um. I, yeah. yeah, the first time I was blown away, but I thought I have to see this again to cement my feelings on it. So I saw it the second time and I loved it. So the basic plot is like Joaquin Phoenix is like a grizzled old vet who's like hired to track down like lost children. And he's got this job to track down the daughter of a senator. And this kind of pulls him into this weird conspiracy where he's navigating, you know, assassins and like child traffickers and stuff like that. And he lives with his mother too. Like he, he looks after her. And we get like sort of flashbacks about his childhood, like with, with their with his father, her husband, and they're very quick snippets. Like the way they intrude upon the movie, it's very unsettling. It's like a jump scare. Like mm-hmm. the way like you see what's the his dad sort of did to them. Um, with like a sort of you think of a sort of standard action movie and like the beats, and this seems like it has that. Like this guy will hurt people. He will accomplish this goal. And the movie has that, but it mainly exists in the margins between those beats. So really, throughout the hour and a half or whatever, you're stuck with this guy whose life is violence and who's been marinating that in his whole life and now it's fucked him up. So you're you're in this weird headspace with him the whole time and the movie sort of slowly draws you into his fucked up world. And it's that's really what the movie's about. It's like the craft is about supplying that emotion of yeah. how this guy lives. And you've got, again, a fantastic score by Johnny Greenwood. Who's amazing. like, yeah. Amazing. His score seamlessly integrates with like the snarling sounds of like a city street. Yeah. So even like him walking around in the city, like the movie is designed to get you in the point of view of like feeling like it's a hostile world. And it never does it in a cliched way. It feels like it was made by like a real original, like Lynn Ramsey, I yeah. believe. Yeah. Who did We Need to Talk About, about Kevin. Kevin and um, one other movie that i don't i don't know yeah. but she's only done like four movies this yeah. is her fourth movie and it's you're watching something where the director is in complete control, control the whole time and um it's a hell of an experience that's what i can say about it and um it's had made the biggest impact on me and i actually can't wait to watch it again i could i guess the closest movie i could compare it to is drive but with completely without the romance, the yeah. sense of romance to it, without that 80s soundtrack. It's just the ugliness. Yeah. And uh, that's like, it's not terribly fun to swallow, I guess. Like some people watch it and just be bored. I can see that or like not really connect to it. But um, I I love that hard boiled kind of stuff. And this was this is very much my cup of tea. I, and I think it was better than it and had any right to be just from mm. a pure directorial standpoint. How are you saw it too, right? Uh, yes, I saw it. Did yeah. I see it with you? Yeah, we both saw it at uh, Red Film Fest. Yeah. yeah, that's right. So I think that like it ha- the movie had one of my favorite action sequences of the year, funny enough, which is the non-action action sequence where Joaquin Phoenix goes Storming into the brothel. goes into the this brothel ready to murder essentially everyone that he comes across, yeah. and then we get to, we see see it from the perspective of security cameras. Yeah, and it cuts to the aftermath. Yeah, it, that, that's all it does. It just cuts to the aftermath of each kill. Yeah. You don't actually see the action. And I think the implication of that is more fun to think about as you as you watch this. I, like that, that was more exciting to watch than 
Henry Cavill's, you know, that punching scene in that really great, well done, high high octane yeah. action scene in a bathroom. But I that kept That's like in in mission yeah. in mission impossible fallout yeah yeah henry cavill's not in this movie punching people as well but um that brothel scene was more captivating to me than most like most of the action scenes that i've seen this year yeah um that i in i took note of this the second time i watched it you see maybe twice or once an actual act of violence clearly like it, oh. it's always aftermath the whole movie is like nearly all of it is aftermath. yeah which, you know, that's very... In- it's just purely through editing and sound, you feel the violence. Yes, instead that's of right. Them actually doing something to someone. Yeah, and it's not in a in a way that is they're trying to get around some kind of PG-13 no, yeah, rating. No, no, not at all. This is the most brutal movie I've seen yeah, this year. Yeah, it's too. an artistic yeah. choice, and it's a, it's really fun to for someone to be that inventive in in a small movie and as it's, well. And it's not just about style, but it fits in with what the ethos of the movie is, which is just the aftermath of things yeah that's yeah. what this movie is about and uh to frame it that way that's a great choice uh, mm. what do you think of it chris because you saw it i was a little disappointed the first time um i've seen it twice now and i really enjoyed it the second time i think i need to see it a, th- a third time because i uh, like the way that you guys talk about it it's, it's stuff that i didn't even notice I, I didn't notice it was all aftermath i think I think I was expecting maybe something different and what I got was so different that I didn't know how to kind of process it. By the end, I was thinking, is this it? I I don't understand. And then I watched it again and I thought, all right, I'm getting a little bit more of this. Um, I think if I saw it a third time, it it would connect with me a little bit more. I still kind of, it is such a... Very different film. Uh, I was talking, you know, Mission Impossible Fallout written yeah. by a 33-page script. This feels like it was just written as th- 33 pages, and then they just said, okay, we want to have this more visual story. Like, the dialogue is just... You could count how many dialogue scenes there are on on one hand, pretty much, which is such a very interesting way to go. There is a lot of very interesting, very ambitious stylings behind all of this that fascinate me. I don't know if it entirely connects with me i need to see it again and but that that's that's the that's the brilliant thing is that it's a kind of movie where i watch it once and i think i need to watch that right now like again i need to watch yeah, it a yeah. second time almost immediately mm. so i think that that is a very interesting thing it's not in my best list but it might creep up closer towards the end of the year we'll we'll see how it goes um yeah that's interesting i i like some parts of it but the film itself didn't really connect with me either and i feel like it sits with the same category of mission impossible fallout in a way that it it has a great style but the substance isn't there for me like i'm not getting i kind of don't really want to see it again hearing reese talk about it makes me think oh that you know it is about the aftermath but i feel like is that does that warrant everything i had to sit through in this whole movie this is a movie where you have to be on that wavelength for it to be connect for you to connect to it and i just wasn't on that wavelength maybe i might be on a second rewatch but i walked out of thinking okay so what well that's yeah that's interesting because i think i there are some movies i like where the movie forces you to almost make the movie in your mind and i think that was the intent with this because there's a scene where his mother is watching psycho yeah and they make a point of like pointing that out and it's like Mm. why would they point that out and they're talking about the shower scene yeah and that's an example where you don't see what's going on but you create the effect in your brain yeah and this movie does that for all, everything, like his backstory, yeah. like his personality, 
And to me, that's like the most engaging way to watch a movie. So I think that's why this was my number one. And yeah, m- like Lost in Translation does this too. And um, that's one of my favorite movies ever made. So I think I just have like a predilection towards those sorts of movies. But the thing is, if they're done, not like 100%. They're like the, it's like the most boring shit, like because mm. you have to be like you know you have to hit that bullseye, you have to be yeah. on target. But um, yeah, that's that's what I think of that one. That's my number one. Yeah, yeah. I can't believe that I'm uh, ending this with my number one pick because um, it's Tully. Oh, interesting. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Not the not the biggest of movies and not the most obvious choice. Before you keep talking about Tully, I think we'll just let you talk about it because I've already said my you piece. You have, I, and I, I was biting say, my tongue. I can't say anything more, so please go ahead. <laughs> um, so, you know, like you, Chris, I'm a huge fan. I think, actually, Jason Reitman is one of the best working directors today. Thank you for smoking. Great movie. One of my favorite movies of all time is Up in the Air. Obviously, Juno, you know. Um, and Juno, which he um, is a collaboration between him and Diablo Cody, the writer of the, you know, that's that's where you get that snappy dialogue, right? Mm. And um, tit for tat exchange. Tit, yeah, yeah. <laughs> What's iconic about the dialogue of, of Juno comes from Diablo Cody. And um, a few years later, down the track, after Up in the Air, um, Jason Reitman collaborated with uh, Diablo Cody again, uh, this time in, uh, in a movie... Uh, also featuring Charlize Theron, um, which is young adult. Charlize Theron stars as this woman who writes uh, for a young adult, who ghostwrites for a young adult series, but it's stuck in that state of arrested development. What's inventive about that movie is that the character goes through typical kind of indie comedy-esque trials you know and she you know supposedly learned things from the people that she meets and at the end of the movie doesn't learn anything and that's the end of the movie and and i think i thought that was genius that was a great evolution from juno it's like juno's shadow yeah <laughs> that's how i put it and and i like, kind of like that evolution you know it's more yeah it's more cynical it's more biting but you can start to see that kind of reliance on style in terms of that snappy dialogue or the gimmickiness of the dialogue start to strip away. And then they follow their collaboration up with Tully, which is, I think, is a next step into that more mature way of filmmaking and and storytelling. He's more focused on back-to-basics visual storytelling. And you can see the evolution of Diablo Cody's um, writing style in her script as well. It's uh, I feel like there's less dialogue than any of her you know past movies. It's definitely less flashy. Yeah, yeah. exactly. It's less flashy. It's more subtle. Um, uh, so the, the movie stars Charlize Theron. Theron. Theron again as uh, basically a mom of three, I think, but at the end of her row, like a burnt frust- out to fuck. <laughs> you know, she's. Almost at the, on the verge of a breakdown, yeah. And then her brother introduces, "Hey, maybe you should consider a night nanny." And in comes this angelic savior of a nanny named Tully, uh, played by Mackenzie Davis. Yeah. So I saw it with you, Reese, and I looked yeah. to you, and I was like, "I've been waiting a really long time for a movie like this to come again, which is a really affecting indie drama, very intimate movie." Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, a really great movie about people. Yeah. And a really great movie about the regrets 
that we have in our lives. I think, you know, we talk about that Trojan horse thing again. This is another Trojan horse movie where it's a movie about motherhood, right? That's what it's being marketed as. But I think that's really just set dressing. Like what it really is, is about looking back at what we've done in our lives and coming to terms with the choices that we've made. Yeah. And that core theme in uh, in the movie is reflected brilliantly by the two-hander between Charlize Theron and uh, Mackenzie Davis. They're great. Uh, great performances. Uh, yeah, Charlize Theron transformed once again into this like schlobby, like exhausted mother. Body's just been beat to hell yeah. from having kids. Yeah, yeah. and it, it's very confronting, like you said, uh, Chris, about you know the kind of trials of motherhood, and it's not always glamorous. It gets into the nitty gritty really well. Like you feel for her when she spills that formula milk. Yes, I remember that's just sort of hanging over the edge. You you get the sense that at this point being a mother it's like a thousand irritations that build up yeah that kind of stifle the miracle of motherhood or whatever and and even though he is a very nice person he's a very nice actor you still kind of hate ron livingston as the dad (laughs) you're just like get off your ass stop playing playstation help your wife you idiot so he obviously ron ron livingston plays the the slacker dad right uh in the movie and i think having him there really helps highlight the very real gender roles that Mm. society has where, you know, yes, you feel like, hey, you know, get off your ass and take care of your kids. Um, But that's an accepted thing in society. Like men are supposed to just be the breadwinner and and that it's in our consciousness where we unexplicitly accept that as fact. So I think that's a good criticism and where that character ends up being in, at the end of the movie, the relationship between the husband and wife and him realizing, oh, I need to step up. Mm-hmm. I think that's great because it's not just um, a movie that is like it's a very feminist movie in the best sense where it's not in your face about like, you know, women are strong and badass. It's more about like everyone needs help. Yeah. Yeah, it's kinda like finding that equilibrium in, in a marriage and in a relationship where um like a couple can help each other out in an equal way. Mm-hmm. And I think it's great that it doesn't, you know, stigmatize Ron Livingston's character as solely as a useless man. Mm, yeah. It's a journey for him too. Yeah. It gives the side character an arc. Yeah. Which is another feat of this movie. When he comes to a, a realization and he learns something. And I like that, you know, the marriage doesn't break apart or anything like that. Yeah. And of course, I guess, spoiler alert, let's talk about the twist. At first, when I watched it, I was like, this is a fucking left turn. Mm. But the film does lay it out slowly, especially yeah. when Mackenzie Davis like dresses up and sleeps with her husband. Yes. And you think at first, this is like a, just a bizarre scene. Like, yeah. Where is this going? Where, where's this movie going? But then they don't really comment on it the next day mm-hmm. and i thought what what's like hap- like you're meant to think about it like obviously yeah. like it's in your mind that something is not a hundred <laughs> yeah know? yeah something's not adding something's up, not adding up yeah. in this and so when you when i'm thinking about it on that the twist is less like weird and when i think you sort of explained to me after the movie like sort of the theme of like how she has to like come to terms with her 26 year old self yeah and like how she like is not that anymore and she has to let that go yeah which 
And I was like, and that, it, yeah. that reflects on like the actual theme in a pretty yeah. interesting way. And that is visualized in these cutaway sequences where it's like she's a mermaid. a mermaid swimming in the water. Yeah, it's yeah. it's great visual storytelling and it's not, uh, you know, like gimmicky in the sense that he, you know, the techniques that he uses in Juno or um, Up in the Air where it's like things happen on screen and you, you know, like this. Yeah, little, it's not cutesy. Yeah, it's not cutesy. Yeah. It's good old fashioned, great visual storytelling as well. And and the script and performances elevates that. Yeah. The, the, see, you know, I already, already talked yeah. a little bit about Tully. Um, but I, 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 that's the thing. I agree with literally everything you said. It is, there's great performances and there's great writing and there's really good dire- direction. Jason Reitman's a really good director. This is, it is, like those things I agree with, but I still just don't really, I think a lot of this, a lot of us talking about these movies is about how we connect to different movies. Yeah. You know, he, yeah. Reese, Reese connects to crazy rich Asians on a level that maybe me and you don't exactly like, we don't feel exactly the kind of connections that he did with those, with that movie. You guys don't exactly feel how I feel about mission impossible fallout. You don't connect on the same kind of levels. And I don't exactly connect with, why you liked you know certain things in Tully? I I can't say that you're wrong because that's impossible. You you feel like that, and I can exactly see why. But it's but it's a matter of when I go back to that movie, I think about how I really enjoyed so much of it, and I just didn't connect with that twist. I I know that it was a point of the story that's where it could have gone. I can't take it out, but I just don't know if that entirely worked for me. I think it kind of cheapened a little bit of the the early stuff which i thought was so realistic and then i don't i just my point my problem was i didn't know how realistic it was that she would hallucinate this entire person i don't know if that's a real thing if it is fine that's great then no, that, then like that's magi- realistic it's like magical realism yeah that yeah it is but, yeah. That, but that wasn't in za- it wasn't exactly set up in the movie to be magical realism. Magical sort of thing, realism's never set up, Chris. <laughs> it's just kind of exists. Yeah. Thank you, Tim Winton. <laughs> I've actually never read a Tim Winton. Oh, God, don't. I think the twist actually, you know, it's kind of like the anti-hereditary in a mm. sense that the twist Enhanced uh, the yeah, elevates the themes. Yeah. Yeah, I'm the opposite. And then yeah. you're just like, oh, like, I think that's what, you know, I love both movies, but that's yeah. what... That's the core difference Pushes between Tully yeah. forward for you more. Exactly. Your 20s are great. But then your 30s come around the corner like a garbage truck at 5 a.m. Girls kill. No, we don't. We might look like we're all better, but if you look close, we're covered in concealer. You're convinced that you're this failure, but you actually made your biggest dream come true. If you want to run off or something, I get that. Because I want to do that too sometimes, but I'm not gonna. I'm here to help you with everything. You can't fix the parts without treating the whole. Yeah, no one's treated my whole in a really long time. <laughs> hey guys, it's Howie here talking to you from the editing booth that is my room. I'd like to thank the few of you who actually made it to the end of this jumbo-sized episode. Uh, As I'm sure you've noticed, the episode ended quite abruptly, and that's because it's part one of our 2018 retrospective. Part two of this conversation will be coming up soon. In that episode, we will be talking about our not-so-favorite movies of 2018 so far. 
So stay tuned for that. Uh, if you have any feedback or thoughts that you'd like to share, um, email us at spoilernationpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you and goodbye.